This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, sexual assault, sexual abuse of children, poisoning, and medical malpractice that may be unsettling. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Most of us know the Greek myth of Icarus, the boy who received a pair of wings held together by wax. With them, he pursued freedom from captivity. But there was one stipulation, that he didn't fly too close to the sun. Unfortunately, Icarus became so consumed with going higher that he ignored the warning, melted the wings, fell from the sky, and drowned in the sea. The story offers an important lesson. The zealous pursuit of more can lead to a painful downfall. Like Icarus, medical serial killer Donald Harvey took victim after victim. Desperate to sate his love of the occult and his hunger for control, he ignored the warning signs. Eventually, this manic pursuit got the better of him, and he fell from the skies, so to speak. Unfortunately for his victims, it would take well over a decade for that fall. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Donald Harvey, the nurse's assistant who mixed poison and suffocation with his psychotic imaginary friend, Duncan, and robbed countless victims of their lives. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Donald Harvey, a hospital orderly. Between 1970 and 1987, 
he killed over 37 patients in Ohio and Kentucky. Last week, we discussed Donald's tumultuous childhood and his fast entrance into the medical field as a nursing assistant and orderly. Today, we'll discuss Donald's time at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital, where he committed the majority of his known murders. We'll also detail the investigation that marked his downfall. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In the fall of 1985, 33-year-old Donald Harvey wasn't exactly on the up and up. Months prior, he'd been caught with a gun on the grounds of the hospital he worked at. Try as he might to blame his boyfriend Carl for planting the gun in his bag, there was no excuse that would save Donald's job. However, there was no mention of the incident on his employment record, since the search had been performed improperly. So Donald didn't struggle to find another position. That winter, Donald applied for a role as a nursing assistant at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati. His interview made a favorable impression on the staff, who didn't uncover the skeletons in his closet. He was hired on February 24th, 1986. At Drake, Donald worked in a long-term care and rehabilitation unit. Palliative care centers are specialized facilities that focus on improving a patient's quality of life, regardless of the diagnosis. Patients in these long-term care units may be expected to improve over time, while others may not have such a positive prognosis. As a nursing assistant in this environment, Donald's job would have involved taking vital signs, documenting details of a patient's progress, and helping out with daily living activities, like eating, grooming, bathing, and using the toilet. He may have also helped express patient concerns to supervising nurses and likely helped facilitate their family communications and visits. This job would have required Donald to exhibit a certain level of compassion and dedication, especially since many patients were likely battling life-threatening conditions. As a self-described mercy killer, Donald had exerted lethal authority over elderly and terminally ill patients in the past. And perhaps the similar imminence of death at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital influenced Donald's decision to apply there. Within his first couple of months at Drake, Donald targeted 65-year-old Nathaniel Watson, who was being treated for a number of serious medical conditions. Most recently, he'd suffered a stroke that had rendered him unable to move or speak. Other than the ability to follow movement with his eyes, Nathaniel was almost entirely unresponsive. Donald claimed to feel pity for Nathaniel's semi-comatose state. At the same time, he'd also heard a rumor around the hospital that Nathaniel was a convicted rapist. The allegation was never proven, and according to William Whalen and Bruce Martin, authors of Defending Donald Harvey, it was likely false. Nevertheless, the gossip hit home for Donald. As a victim of childhood molestation himself, he despised those who sexually exploited others. Donald didn't seek to verify the rumor. The suggestion alone was enough for him to act. 
In April 1986, 33-year-old Donald entered Nathaniel's room, which had a total of five patients. For privacy, Donald drew the curtain around Nathaniel's bed. Donald cleaned Nathaniel and changed the man's body positioning as he normally would. Then, he wet a garbage bag and firmly covered Nathaniel's nose and mouth. It's likely the water made the plastic bag cling to Nathaniel's face. As Nathaniel suffocated, unable to signal for help with anything but frantic eyes, Donald eagerly pressed his stethoscope to Nathaniel's chest. As in previous attacks, Donald hoped to hear the man's slowing heartbeat. But as he leaned closer to his victim, Donald heard a noise in the hallway. Afraid he'd be caught in the act, Donald immediately stopped, threw the trash bag away, and exited the room. Later that day, Donald returned to Nathaniel's room and attempted to asphyxiate him again. But as Nathaniel's pulse slowed, Donald was interrupted a second time. Nathaniel survived, though he was tragically unable to report Donald. The following day, Donald developed a strategy to avoid further complication. He propped a trash can by the door of Nathaniel's room so that if anyone tried to enter, he would hear the scratch of the can sliding across the floor. The trash can would also serve as an obstacle for visitors, giving Donald a few seconds to hide the evidence of his deed. Once again, Donald wet a trash bag and held it against Nathaniel's face. This time, he added a pillow to speed up the attack. Within three minutes, Nathaniel was dead. The nurses discovered him almost an hour later. Though Donald had attacked his patient three times in 24 hours, no one suspected that Nathaniel had been murdered. Still, Donald was frustrated that he'd been foiled twice. For his subsequent murders, he chose a method he believed was foolproof. One of the earliest victims to suffer this fate was, in Donald's eyes, ready to die. 81-year-old Virgil Weedle was one of Donald's favorite patients. The two bonded over stories about their home state, Kentucky. But soon, those moments of camaraderie were darkened by Virgil's discontent. He supposedly told Donald that he prayed for an end to his suffering. Having developed a friendship with Virgil, Donald felt it was his duty to honor that dying wish. Donald went to a local store and picked up a package of rat poison, assuming it contained arsenic, the same toxin he'd used to poison his boyfriend Carl and their neighbors in the past. It's likely Donald felt administering this substance to an unwitting Virgil was a much more humane death than suffocation. This method was also more passive. Donald could leave it in Virgil's food, walk out of the room, and let the chemical run its lethal course he would kill his friend, but he wouldn't listen as he died. Because it often took a few doses of arsenic to sicken Carl, Donald anticipated he'd have to do the same to Virgil. But he was unaware that the rat poison he selected didn't contain arsenic, but warfarin. 
Warfarin is a blood thinner and has been used for preventing and treating blood clotting disorders for over 50 years. However, it was first employed in pest control and has a long history of being used to kill rats. It works by blocking four critical vitamin K-dependent clotting factors in the liver, which ultimately decreases blood coagulation in the veins and slows the growth of existing blood clots. Any minor errors in dosing could lead to catastrophic bleeding problems, and doctors now generally turn to newer and less problematic anticoagulants. With their blood clotting so compromised, any bleeding could be potentially dangerous, and this includes microscopic gastrointestinal bleeds from ulcers and polyps. The bleeding may then in turn put great strain on the coronary arteries as the heart muscle contracts more vigorously to compensate for the blood loss. This can be particularly dangerous in someone with underlying heart disease. Blood thinners definitely aren't safe for everyone. Donald put a small amount of the rat poison in Virgil's pudding at lunch. Virgil only got through half of the dessert before collapsing. Ten minutes later, Virgil died of an apparent heart attack, potentially triggered by the warfarin. Donald was surprised at how quickly it all happened. Curious how his victims would respond, Donald quickly sought out an even more dangerous chemical compound. On Friday, May 2nd, 1986, Donald entered the room of 65-year-old lung cancer patient Doris Nally. While Doris's visitors were away, Donald served her a glass of apple juice spiked with cyanide urging her to drink it. Doris did as she was told. There's definitely a possibility that Doris did taste the cyanide, although there's no guarantee. Cyanide salt, which is highly water-soluble, has been described as having an acrid and almost soapy taste, while the moistened crystals can smell like stale almonds. However, in this instance, it's possible that the sweetness of the apple juice concealed the bitter taste or any scent of the poison. There's also the potential that Doris's cancer treatment could have compromised her taste buds, which might have left her in the dark. Many people undergoing chemotherapy, for example, experience changes in their sense of taste, so this wouldn't have been abnormal. Ultimately, even if Doris did notice an odd taste or smell, she likely wouldn't assume she was being poisoned. Once Doris ingested the cyanide, Donald left the room. When Doris's visitors returned, they noticed that she seemed ill and decided to give her time to recuperate. Hours later, a nurse found Doris dead. No one looked into the apple juice. Unsuspected, Donald Harvey's lethal experiments continued. In May and June of 1986, Donald poisoned 59-year-old Willie Johnson, adding arsenic to the man's food when he wasn't looking. Luckily, it wasn't enough to kill Willie. Unluckily, Donald realized this. In late June 1986, he added significantly more arsenic to the soup of patient Edward Schreibis, a man in his 60s. A few days later, Edward had passed. As usual, Donald wasn't questioned about these incidents. 
In fact, about four days after Edward's death, Donald received a good employee performance evaluation from the nursing supervisor. According to the evaluation form, Donald seemed cooperative, helpful, and attentive to patients. Though this report gives the impression that Donald's expertise and motive went unquestioned at Drake, by late June 1986, there were nurses on staff who began to notice the strange instances of sudden death on Donald's watch. When they brought their concerns to the nursing supervisor, her response was less than satisfactory. She told the whistleblowing nurses to cease their outlandish slander and reportedly even threatened to terminate their jobs if they continued to make complaints about Donald. Just as Donald was able to skew the perceptions of his elementary school principal in childhood, he was seemingly able to manipulate his supervisor into thinking he was capable of no wrong. But soon, his hubris would challenge the trust he'd garnered. Coming up, Donald Harvey flies too close to the sun. Robbing trains, rustling cattle. Pop culture usually depicts the Old West as an uncharted land with no rules. But how much of that is true? Now you can find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales in the Spotify original from Parcast, Wild Wild West. Every Thursday on Spotify, settle up to the saloon to hear about the American frontier's most ruthless outlaws, and heroic gunslingers. Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across ParCast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1986, 34-year-old Donald Harvey worked as an orderly at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati. But he spent much of his time there plotting and committing murder. According to authors William Whalen and Bruce Martin, by the end of his first four months, he'd killed at least six patients, moving from suffocation to experiments with poisons. Poisoning may have allowed him to feel less physically involved in the act of killing, which suggests that Donald now preferred the control of ending a life to the thrill of murder. It marked a change from his previous modus operandi of listening to a patient's heart with a stethoscope as they died, and it may have been influenced by the lack of control Donald felt in his personal life. In the summer of 1986, Donald's relationship with Carl Howeller hit the rocks. 
A shock to no one, since Donald had routinely poisoned Carl, his friends, and family. Carl didn't know it yet, but Donald had fatally poisoned his father. After a summer of distrust and fighting, Donald moved out of Carl's home and into a trailer. When Donald had experienced a breakup in the past, he'd set his apartment bathroom on fire, attempted suicide, and enlisted in the military. While his spiral this time looked slightly different, it was no less safe to the world around him. Donald's coping mechanisms manifested as increased brutality toward his patients. He also stepped up his practice of occultism. That fall, Donald's mobile home became a sanctuary for ritualistic practices where he called on Duncan, the spirit of a World War II doctor he'd conjured during his coven initiation one decade prior. Ever since then, Donald believed that Duncan assisted him in selecting many of his mercy killings. Now, in fall 1986, he invoked Duncan's presence to prepare his latest murder weapon. Donald's small kitchen became a makeshift lab where he mixed cyanide crystals with water to create liquid solutions. Cyanide can either be a gas or exist in a crystal form, like sodium cyanide, for example, which is highly water-reactive. Dissolving this crystallized cyanide in water produces a deadly hydrogen cyanide gas and results in the creation of a very dangerous corrosive solution. Depending on the concentration of cyanide, this solution could painfully kill someone in minutes, Alistair. Ingesting a large amount of the poison this way would be caustic, highly irritating, and harmful to the stomach and esophageal lining. The solution could also cause severe abdominal pain, in addition to the cyanide's expected central nervous system toxicity. As opposed to killing someone through cyanide gas inhalation, this death would have taken longer and would have most likely been more painful. Killing someone as such almost seems like adding insult to injury, so it's odd that Donald equated this to mercy. Donald began carrying the mixture with him to work every day, even when he didn't have a patient in mind to kill. This strongly suggests that some of Donald's crimes were spur-of-the-moment attacks. By the end of his first 12 months at Drake, Donald had taken the lives of over 20 patients, a significant increase from the approximate 15 deaths at the VA hospital and 10 at Marymount Hospital that he's thought to have caused. In addition, Donald kept a detailed list of each murder he committed at Drake, something he didn't do at the other two facilities. He'd become obsessed with tracking his victims, each time he claimed another life, he'd write down the name of the patient. He hid this record behind a photo frame in his trailer, pointing to the deluded sense of pride that killings supplied him. And as 1987 began, that list was getting long. Over 30 murders across three hospitals, and no one had caught Donald yet. He must have felt unstoppable as he selected another name for his list, John Powell. 
44-year-old John Powell was an adventurous man who had endured a tragic motorcycle accident the previous summer. After sustaining life-threatening brain injuries and undergoing surgery, John was sent to Drake, thus landing in the care of nursing assistant Donald Harvey. As his family came to know the staff during their regular visits to John, Donald Harvey was likely someone they found comfort in. They felt a sense of closeness to him that assured them John was in good hands. Miraculously, John began to recover. Though he wasn't able to speak with the breathing tube in his throat, he could open his eyes and nod his head in response to questions. His family celebrated the significant progress. But Donald saw John's predicament from a different perspective. While John may have appeared to be improving as far as his loved ones were concerned, Donald couldn't help but notice the frequent setbacks in John's healing. On January 30th, 1987, John suffered a respiratory tract infection and a pulmonary embolism. He was promptly sent to University of Cincinnati Medical Center before returning to Drake. Shortly after, John was rushed to the emergency room with a case of sepsis, a dangerous condition that arises when the body's reaction to an infection harms its own tissues. When he returned to Drake, the staff had a grim prognosis. They deemed John a no-code case. A no-code, or DNR, which stands for do not resuscitate, means that in the event John experienced, like a cardiac arrest, doctors would choose not to revive him. Since we know they were involved with his care, John's family would have authorized his doctors to identify him as a DNR patient. In my own experience, I've sadly guided many families through these emotionally charged DNR conversations. I currently have a patient in her early 90s who's asked me to be her medical directive or that person to decide on whether or not to resuscitate her when she meets this unfortunate moment in her life. Had no one been there to speak on John's behalf, healthcare professionals that were present would have been forced to make that call themselves and they would choose the DNR option in situations where a patient's condition will leave them in need of ongoing life support without the possibility for improvement. When patients in hospital settings are continuously ping-ponging in their health between slight improvement and regression, the decision-making becomes quite tricky. In John Powell's case, the Drake nurses and doctors were preparing for the worst. This only strengthened Donald's opinion that it was time to intervene. On March 6, 1987, John's wife and daughter visited his room. Most days, John seemed to be in good spirits. But on this day, he was visibly frustrated. They could tell he was trying to communicate something to them. Though they tried desperately to decode his body language, they were unable to understand. As they left, they looked forward to returning tomorrow, hopeful that they might make sense of whatever it was John had been trying to tell them. That wish would never come true. The following morning, Donald Harvey prepared a vial of cyanide solution in his kitchen and headed off to Drake for his 7 a.m. shift. Sometime before 8 a.m., Donald made his way to John Powell's room. 
he pulled the curtain around John's bed and poured the poison into John's feeding tube. As the toxin ran its course, John's body convulsed for a few moments before going still. Satisfaction swelled through Donald, but his resplendent moment was short-lived, as he knew he'd have to inform the staff lest he appear guilty. He rushed to find a nurse and reported that John seemed to be in a declining state and that he feared the patient may be dying. When the nurse entered John's room, she found him dead. Because John was declared a do-not-resuscitate case, no life-saving measures were attempted. When they received the news, the Powell family was both devastated and shocked. In their perspective, John had been making progress. But as his wife and daughter thought back to the last moment they shared with John just the day before, they remembered John's attempts to convey his final message. Was John trying to give them some sort of warning? The prospect haunted them as they prepared to make final arrangements. Before they could proceed with the burial, however, John's body was autopsied. Ohio law requires autopsies for deaths related to accidents, and it was assumed John died due to his motorcycle accident. Donald was aware of this, but unconcerned. Although cyanide can be found in the body, the examiner would have to take blood and tissue samples and run a special test for the substance. Since foul play wasn't suspected, there would be no reason to run such a test. On March 8, 1987, Dr. Lee D. Lehman proceeded with his examination of John Powell as normal, noting marks and scars, photographing the body, and opening the chest cavity. But matters soon took a bizarre turn. Dr. Lehman was well-versed in cyanide and had learned about its bitter almond odor during his medical residency. And as a forensic pathologist, he'd been specially trained to diagnose poisonings. So he couldn't ignore the distinctive scent that wafted from John's open stomach. Concerned, Dr. Lehman gathered extra blood samples and sent them off to be tested for cyanide. The results confirmed what he already knew. John Powell had not died from natural causes. Dr. Lehman handed his findings over to the Cincinnati Police Department. Through March and April of 1987, the department conducted a thorough investigation. They assumed they were dealing with a one-off crime of passion, but wanted to rule out the possibility of accidental death first. Because cyanide could exist in hospital food as the result of manufacturer error, it was possible that John had consumed something contaminated. But when officers ran an analysis on what John had consumed through his tube in those final days, the results were negative for cyanide. Now, there was only one explanation for John Powell's death. Someone had intentionally poisoned him. The case was officially deemed a homicide. Coming up, the investigation circles Donald Harvey. Now, back to the story. 
At the start of 1987, 34-year-old Donald Harvey had killed at least 37 patients while working as an orderly and nursing assistant, with no plans of stopping. He'd grown adept at poisoning patients without leaving a trace, or at least, not an easily detectable one. But on March 8, 1987, forensic pathologist Dr. Lee D. Lehman discovered cyanide in the body of Donald's latest victim, John Powell. A homicide investigation promptly emerged. Considering who might have motive to kill John, investigators first looked to his widow. Since John's health insurance was dwindling, she was facing future out-of-pocket expenses for John's stay at Drake. John also had a life insurance policy that would go to his wife upon his death. The police asked her for an interview. Extremely cooperative, she passed a polygraph test with flying colors and was eliminated as a suspect. The police's next pool of suspects were the Drake nurses and doctors charged with his care and any visitors who had contact with John prior to his death. One by one, the police interviewed 35 individuals who fit that profile. This investigation couldn't have come to a surprise to everyone. Drake still employed nurses who'd suspected Donald Harvey of harming patients in the past. However, for whatever reason, they didn't come forward at this time. Perhaps they feared being dismissed again. Donald knew that as John's nursing assistant, he'd be one of the employees questioned. In an effort to conceal evidence, he threw away his occult paraphernalia and his cyanide supply. He withdrew a large sum of cash from his bank account, anticipating the need to flee. And to assuage his own concerns about the imminent polygraph test, Donald researched methods of tricking a lie detector. Manipulating the results of a polygraph test can be difficult, but it's definitely something that can be done. Standard polygraph tests are computerized recording systems to monitor three specific clinical signs of when the autonomic nervous system is aroused, which includes one's heart rate or blood pressure, respiration rate, and electrodermal activity, or the electrical changes in the skin. Generally, polygraph tests follow the CTQ, or the Control Test Question Guidelines, which is considered to be maybe only slightly more reliable than chance in determining deception and has a colossal likelihood for error. Most psychologists and mental health experts actually feel the efficacy of the polygraph test isn't supported by sufficient data. They also note the lack of evidence showing that any physiological reactions reliably indicate lying or deception. And just to dump on polygraph tests a little more, there are studies that show that beating this test can be accomplished through simple physical movements and positions, reframing the test mentally, and by taking drugs or other substances that are known to lower arousal. This may all sound easy enough, but the trouble here is not getting caught. It's possible Donald realized this in his research. On the day of the scheduled test, he called in sick. When he arrived for the rescheduled examination in early spring 1987, Donald refused to take it altogether. In response, the officers asked if Donald would instead be willing to talk to them freely. Donald agreed. 
And despite all his preparation, Donald succumbed to police questioning. Mid-interview, he outright confessed to killing John Powell. The next question was pivotal. The officer wanted to know if Donald had committed any other mercy killings at Drake. Donald's response was, I don't remember. Sometimes I think I'm two different people and I don't know what the other one does. The officer interpreted Donald's statements as an attempt to establish an insanity plea and avoid consequences for the murder of John Powell. He didn't want to risk that, so he ended the interview. Then, he brought Donald's confession to his fellow investigators. They had their culprit. On Monday, April 6, 1987, 34-year-old Donald Harvey was charged with aggravated murder and arrested. The Powell family was shocked. Having spent so much time with the nurse's assistant during their visits to the hospital, they'd assumed Donald had John's best interest at heart. The illusion of trust they had in healthcare was shattered. Without sufficient funds to hire a private defense lawyer, Donald resorted to a public defender, attorney William Whalen. Whalen had the same thinking as Donald and filed a not guilty by reason of insanity plea. But the determination of Donald's fitness for trial was in the hands of a clinical psychologist who determined Donald was fully aware of the difference between right and wrong. In response, Donald's attorney attempted to negotiate a plea bargain, hoping to reduce the charge to manslaughter. But in the midst of this negotiation, local Cincinnati TV station, WCPO-TV, ran a newscast covering Donald's arrest and confession. Just four days after that broadcast, the anchor received an anonymous phone call from a Drake nurse who adamantly believed Donald had killed other patients. To prove it, she provided a list of 13 suspected victims. Though she refused to reveal her identity for fear of retaliation, she agreed to stay in contact with the journalist. It turned out the routine report had opened a Pandora's box. Four more Drake employees came forward with concerning stories about Donald Harvey. Unfortunately, they also had accounts of the head nurse sweeping their reports under the rug. The medical staff offered the journalist official records and Donald's work schedule, from which he was able to pick up on certain correlations. Though the documents showed Donald's opportunity to kill, the evidence was circumstantial. So the journalist reached out to Donald's attorney, William Whalen, possibly hoping he might reveal a confession Donald had made. William Whalen was all too familiar with the ploys of journalists. He refused to offer a comment, but the new documents piqued his interest. He'd never considered that Donald may have killed others, and the fact that nurses were willing to verify the story was alarming. At his next meeting with Donald, William cut to the chase and asked Donald if he was responsible for other deaths. Donald's answer was an unequivocal yes. William 
was stunned, then conflicted over how to proceed. He could conceal Donald's latest confession as the journalists move forward with the damning testimony from Donald's colleagues, but his silence would do little to help Donald's case. At that moment, William Whalen had a realization. The media attention would put pressure on the police and prosecutor to investigate and charge Donald before they had time to build their case on their own. In order to exhume the right bodies to get the hard evidence they needed, the investigators would have to come crawling to Donald for named confessions. This would allow him to strike a plea agreement and avoid the death penalty. So William provided the news station with a copy of Donald's original confession tape, which included the question about other murders at Drake. The next broadcast went live in June of 1987. This news segment included interviews with the whistleblowing nurses, their voices and faces obscured for anonymity, medical experts, and details from the confession tape. William's plan worked. Pressured by the public and the Cincinnati Police Department, the prosecution was forced to broker a plea deal so that Donald would supply a list of his victims. In exchange for a confession of all murders that took place in the jurisdiction of Hamilton County, Ohio, even those outside of Drake Hospital, 35-year-old Donald would be given three life sentences served consecutively. He'd be 95 years old before the possibility of parole, but he'd be able to avoid the death penalty. In the summer of 1987, the prosecution, defense, and investigators gathered to hear Donald's highly anticipated confession. They all leaned in as he started his notorious story, the same one we've been telling. The details were brutal, and Donald's cold-hearted lack of regard for human life was almost unbelievable. Over the course of 12 long hours, he recalled 23 murders at Drake and four outside of hospital settings, including two neighbors and his ex-boyfriend Carl's father. There were an additional two names he attempted to identify from his time at the VA hospital in Cincinnati, though he admitted he had trouble remembering so far back. A week later, the team gathered again for the second half of Donald's confession. This session would be focused on the killings at Cincinnati's VA hospital. Donald estimated that he killed 10 to 15 patients, but as he had mentioned the week before, he had trouble recalling names and dates. Investigators presented a list of patients who died during his tenure. One by one, they went through the documents with Donald. He confirmed six of the patients as his victims. The other nine or so he had estimated slipped his mind. Unfortunately, since all of Donald's murders at the VA had relied on asphyxiation, they'd be nearly impossible to prove as the bodies would hold no physical evidence. The same applied to those victims Donald killed at Marymount. But the murders at Drake could be proven. After a review of the death certificates, 
10 patients were identified as possible victims of cyanide or arsenic poisoning and exhumed. Testing determined that all 10 bodies held traces of poison. With that, Donald Harvey was formally indicted. On August 21, 1987, 35-year-old Donald Harvey sat in front of a judge and grand jury. A sea of spectators and journalists gathered behind him. Since the verdict had already been declared with the plea agreement, the whole ordeal was a formality. But it gave the public a chance to witness justice being served. Donald was escorted out in handcuffs, banished to prison for the rest of his life. But in the end, the law didn't determine Donald's ultimate punishment. On March 28, 2017, a fellow inmate named James Elliott beat 64-year-old Donald into critical condition in his prison cell. Donald died from injuries two days later, on March 30th. When asked the reason for the attack, James said he grew up in Kentucky and knew some of the family members of Donald's victims. After all was said and done, Donald Harvey ironically died at the hands of someone who'd been indirectly affected by his brutality. He really did pay the ultimate price for what was fundamentally a murderous ego trip, and his death marked the end of his ride. Unfortunately, given Donald's experiences with sexual abuse, early life physical trauma, and environmental difficulties during his childhood, he had a lot stacked against him. This case really shows how such disenfranchisement under the right conditions can give rise to an insatiable anger and hunger for power. It can easily ignite a fire in someone, but that fire has the potential to burn out of control and become incredibly destructive. In this instance, it led to Donald committing numerous murders. It seems like once he got a taste of this morbid dose of self-esteem, there was no turning back. Donald Harvey's career as an orderly and nurse's aide was one of unbridled confidence to kill without consequence. His flight to the sun seemed nearly unstoppable until he took his body count one victim too high. Though it took decades for accountability to show its face, Donald Harvey finally fell from his reign of terror as a serial killer, leaving behind his self-proclaimed identity as a high-flying angel of death. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Donald Harvey, among the many sources we used, we found Defending Donald Harvey by William Whalen and Bruce Martin extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Courtney Taylor, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, 
fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parcast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify. Spotify.